listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So historically this morning, I mean, it's a great time in the life of the Christian faith, it, it, the beginning of Holy Week, where today marks Palm Sunday. And we saw this way back in John chapter 12. It's called the triumphal entry. It's where Jesus rides in on a colt and the streets of Jerusalem swell and they begin shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, hail King of Israel. Then on Monday, it's where Jesus weeps over the city. It's where Jesus will come in and then cleanse the temple of the money changers. Tuesday, the religious leaders are going to gather to decide what do we do about Jesus. And this man, Judas, is going to step forward and say, I know. Jesus will then go to the Mount of Olives and teach his Olivet Discourse. But Wednesday is silent. We know nothing about what happens on Wednesday. It seems like a day of rest for Jesus. Thursday, Peter and John are told to go prepare the upper room and Jesus gets down and washes the disciples' feet and he claims, I am the Lamb of God that is sent to take away the sins of the world. And then Jesus headed off to the garden where he stopped before the cross to pray. So where we pick up is actually late Thursday evening. And this morning from John 18, you're going to see three things. One, you're going to see Jesus' absolute control. You will see Peter's changing devotion, and then you will see Barabbas experience, the most unlikely of people, experience mercy. So let's pick up in John chapter 18, Jesus' absolute control. It says, when Jesus spoke these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kedron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered, and now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew this place. For Jesus often went there with his disciples. So Jerusalem is this walled city that sits upon the hill. And to the east of Jerusalem would be this Kedron Valley, this brook. And during the dry season, it was just a dry riverbed. But there was a drain that ran from the temple into this brook. In fact, just hours, the brook will be running with red from the blood of the sacrifices. On the other side of this Kedron Valley is the Garden of Gethsemane. And it was this beautiful hillside covered in olive trees. And there was one part of this garden that was privately owned that was walled in. And I believe this is most likely the place where Jesus enters. And notice it said it's a familiar place. It's a place where Jesus, you can read about in Luke, where Jesus often camped for, with the disciples when they came to Jerusalem. Many people did this. So you did not have a place to stay. It was kind of like almost a state park that you could put your tent and you could stay there as you were celebrating during the festivals. And it says that Judas was very familiar with this place. And so what you see is this is the perfect opportunity to finally take Jesus. We see twice they've tried to seize him in John 7 and John 9, and he just walked right past them. But now they have the perfect place and the perfect plan. They have the cover of darkness. They have a person to identify Jesus in the darkness of the night. 
They're inside a walled garden. And Jesus is alone except for 11 sleeping disciples. Then in verse 3, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priest, and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now on the way, it says here, they want to make sure that this time he is not going to slip through their fingers. In fact, it shows us the Roman soldiers and the temple guard. There are actually two different groups. And this is significant because what John is showing us, now both groups, Gentiles and Jews, are both responsible for what's about to happen. Both are indicted. It says it's a group of Roman soldiers. It was a cohort that was anywhere from like six to 800 Roman soldiers along with the temple guards against one rabbi and 11 sleepy men. But they have the cover of darkness. They have the element of surprise. They've got the numbers. They've got the weapons. They've got the torches. And they have him surrounded in this walled garden. Everything is now perfect, and they feel they are in absolute control of the situation, that there's no way he's going to escape this time, or so they think. But look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and he said to him, Whom do you seek? You see, Jesus takes the initiative. They're coming up over the hill with their torches and their weapons, and Jesus calls out to them. Because he wants them to know who's really in charge of this thing. That he doesn't select this garden as a place to hide. He selected the garden as a place to be found. He chose a spot that was well known to Judas. Because the time is here for him to lay down his life. So the soldiers answered. And they said to him, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. So Jesus could have ran and hid, but instead he's giving himself up. And this next scene is absolutely amazing. Because notice Jesus replies with, I am he. Now, the literal translation of that is really two words, I am. And when he says this, notice what happens. In verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am They drew back and they fell to the ground. Meaning when Jesus spoke his identity, a thousand armed guards shrank and were terrified of one single unarmed rabbi. What you're seeing is Jesus' last exercise of power. He has calmed the seas, fed the masses, healed the lame and the sick. And when he pronounces his identity, a thousand men are thrown to the ground. He could have killed them. He could have rendered them incapable of capturing him. But they are not in control. And when they come back to their feet, Jesus asks them a second time. In verse 7, he says to them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So he gave them the simple answer. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus openly identifies himself, but he has one request. 
Let the disciples go. Because he's not asking for himself. He knows what is in store and he is willing to fulfill what has been laid before him. And so in John 18 verses 1 through 7, John wants his readers to see who is really in control here. And it's Jesus. But this is too much and you know who it is. Too much for one disciple to handle. And he comes out swinging. In verse 10, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, and that's kind of an understatement, it was really kind of a small dagger, drew it and struck the high servant, priest's servant and cut off his ear. The servant's name was Malichus. Now listen, I have no doubt that Peter was not shooting for this man's ear. He was going for his head. But Peter was a much better fisherman than a swordsman. And he gets the ear. And what you see is Peter, he's got all the zeal in the world. He said, I'm never going to deny you. I'll never leave you. I will lay down my life. But he lacks the knowledge and understanding that Jesus has. Because notice what Jesus says to him. So Jesus said to Peter, Peter, put the sword away. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And what Jesus is saying is so important because Jesus knows the plan. And the plan is not to start a war. The plan is, is not to resist. It's to drink the cup. So write these down. Look at them later. Psalm 75, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, Ezekiel 23. It talks about the cup being the wrath of God that will be poured out on sinners. And Jesus is saying that I must go and drink this cup dry to save humanity. And Jesus knows this. Peter doesn't understand it. But then, I think Jesus offers his hand. Because in verse 12, it says, The band of soldiers and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus. Notice once again, both groups being indicted and they bound him. So they wrapped him in chains, they wrapped him in ropes, and they led him away to his first stop. And it's an unusual one. In verse 13, it says, First they led him to Ananias, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Remember who Caiaphas was? It made the big pronouncement earlier. Who was the high priest of the year. It was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient quickly that one man should die for the people. And what you know by reading the Gospels is Jesus will go through six trials. Six or three religious and three civil. In all six of them, he is found innocent. And the first one is Ananias. See, Ananias is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was really the high priest appointed by Rome. But the Jews, they recognized Ananias. So they bring him to Ananias. And uh, two disciples, because notice who's following. Fifteen, and there he is, Simon Peter, followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. And I believe that's the author John here, because several times he will refer to himself as the other disciple. And it says, since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. So somehow, some way, I'm not for sure, John is known to the high priest. I believe it was to his father. His father was not just a fisherman. 
He was a very well-done businessman, and he was known in the area. Perhaps he knew the high priest, so he was allowed in. But notice what happens to Peter. Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, John, who was known to the high priest, went out and he spoke to the servant girl that kept watch of the night, and he brought Peter in. So John turns around, he says to the servant girl, hey, he's with me. Hey, let him, let him come on in. And here's where you begin to see Peter's changing devotion. In verse 17, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of the man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. And notice the contrast between Peter and Jesus. Peter said, I am he. I mean, Jesus said, I am he. And Peter says, I am not. Now the servants and the officers made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing, warming themselves. Peter was with them, standing there, keeping himself warm. What's interesting is that all four Gospels record all of the denials of Peter. And I'm sure Peter appreciates that. I mean, he could have been like, hey guys, one of you's enough, but all three, all four of you, do you have to record my least favorite moment in life? But here's Peter. He promised he would die for Jesus. He promised he would never leave or betray Jesus. He drew his sword to defend him. But now he stands before a servant girl and denies Jesus. And you can feel the wind shifting in Peter's devotion. So then John takes us back in the courtyard. And the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And if we had been a Jewish audience, when you had read this, you would have been absolutely shocked at what you were reading. Because this audience here would have read and known this was a mockery and an absolutely illegal trial. Let me just give you eight. No trials before the morning sacrifice or at night. And where do we find ourselves? At night. No trials on the Sabbath or during festivals. And guess where we are? We're during a festival. No secret trials, only in public. And we're in a private courtyard. Trials only in the hall of judgment. Not where we find ourselves. An accused person could not testify. But who are they asking to speak? The one accused. Two or three witnesses were required. No one is standing around. Only witnesses could be questioned, not the accused. And who do they ask? They ask the accused. And here's the boldest one. The high priest could not participate in the questioning. And who asked the first one? It's the high priest. I mean, Jesus could have called for a mistrial at any moment but they're not in charge. Jesus is. And they question him about the disciples and his teaching, and notice Jesus' response. And Jesus answered them, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I've said to them, and they will let you know. And he's saying, just go and ask anyone. I haven't done this privately. I've taught in the synagogues. I've taught in the temple. Ask anyone and they will tell you. But then rule number nine is broken. In verse 22, when he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, what have I said is wrong? 
bear witness about the wrong. But what if I said is right? Why do you strike me? So he reaches out and he slaps him across the face. But Jesus doesn't react. He simply answers. He says, if I've done something wrong, then tell me. But if I've done nothing wrong, why do you hit me? So Ananias doesn't know what to do. So he sends him to Caiaphas. In verse 24, Ananias sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And as we go that way, we see Peter once again. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They said to him, you also are not one of the disciples, are you? And he denied it, and he said, and notice his words carefully again, I am not. The exact same words. Denial number two. Then in verse 26, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it, and once the rooster crowed. In fact, you read the other Gospels, it tells us that Peter did not just deny it, that he was cursing that he was not. Now, I believe when Peter heard that rooster give the shout, he could hear the words of Jesus ringing in his ears. That Peter's devotion is beginning to change. I mean, think about Peter. He's the one back on the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter, James, And John, get to watch Moses and Elijah carry on a conversation with Jesus. And Peter's the one that says, man, I want to put a tent right here, and I never want to leave this mountain. I will live the rest of my days here. I want to be nowhere else. He is more bold, more zealous for Jesus than any other disciple. But now he is standing, he is completely disoriented. You know what you see from Peter's fall? You actually see the darkness of the human heart. You see what we are all capable of. I mean, Peter's got the zeal. He's more outwardly committed to Jesus than anyone else. And Peter finds himself retreating and denying the one that he promised he would never desert. But I want you to know there's good news in the denial. In chapter 21, one of my favorite chapters in John's gospel, you see Peter is the kind of person that Jesus loves to forgive, to restore, and the kind of person Jesus invites to carry out his mission. Well, then John moves us to the civil trial. We're getting to the Roman officials. It says in verse 28, Then they led Jesus to the house of Caiaphas, to the governor, from Caiaphas' house, to the governor's headquarters. That's Pilate. It's early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, so they would not be defiled, but they could eat the Passover. You know what? It's so fascinating. They've already broke so many laws. But a Jew could not go into a Gentile's home, and that was a line they weren't willing to cross. But Pilate, and you need to know Pilate was brutal, but he was politically out of his league, and he was completely anti-Jewish. In fact, he only received this appointment by marrying the granddaughter of the Roman emperor, Augustus. And then he buddies up to a guy, a friend, because a friendship with the reigning, go, or the, the reigning official of Rome named Sionis. They became great friends. But it is hard to oversell how much hatred the Jews had for Pilate 
and Pilate had for the Jews. Just listen to a few things he did. On his initial visit to Jerusalem, he enraged them by having the soldiers carry banners with the image of Tiberius. Tiberius is the reigning emperor of Rome, but he's, he's kind of off now in, in it's kind of semi-retirement on the Isle of Capri. Another occasion, he has his soldiers go and they, they raid the, the temple so he can build an aqueduct. The citizens, men, they object and they're coming to protest. And Pilate takes soldiers, puts them in plain clothes, puts them out amongst the people. And when he gives the signal, they pull their swords and begin murdering Jews. And then just to add insult, just so they know who's in charge... He takes the shields bearing Tiberius' image, hangs them in the temple, and he interferes with the Jewish religious sacred sacrifices. Listen, Pilate, he is no friend of the Jews. So why would they go to Pilate? Of all the people, why him? You see, the Jews had no legal right to put Jesus to death. They could probably stone him. Rome might look the other way. But the Jewish leaders needed to turn the people's allegiance away from Jesus. Three days earlier, they'd shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, hell, king of the Jews. They needed to turn the people against Jesus. The last thing they needed to do was make Jesus a martyr. They needed to discredit him. So then someone thinks back to Deuteronomy 21. They finally found the silver bullet. They said, we got it. If we can get Rome to put Jesus on a tree, the sacred scriptures tell us that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. And that was their best option. If they could get Rome to nail him to a cross, it would show that Jesus was not who he says he was, and he was cursed by God. So verse 29, So Pilate went out to them and he said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And he answered him, if this man were do, not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. You can just feel the disdain. Take him yourselves and judge him by your own laws. But they couldn't. They were stuck. But you can see Pilate wants nothing to do with Jesus. In fact, at this point, he refuses to be the executioner. He knew something was up. He had probably heard or seen the triumphal entry. Jews did not turn on themselves, so he knew something was wrong. And then he goes on to say, and the Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So once again, John's showing who's in control. That Pilate knew this wasn't normal for them to turn on their own and for them to even ask Rome for help. So Pilate brings Jesus inside. He wants to have a private conversation. So Pilate entered his headquarters, and again he called Jesus, and he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? See, Pilate, though, is not only on the outs with the Jews. He's on the thin ice with Rome. Because what's happened, he hasn't kept harmony with the Jews, and Rome has taken notice. And Pilate, Pilate needs a win. So what he's trying to do is, hey, let's assess what kind of threat Jesus is. And if he is a threat, I'll make it known. Rome will see this, and I'll have favor with Rome. 
But Jesus is much smarter, so he answers with a yes and a no. Verse 34, Jesus answered, Do you say this on your own accord, or did others say it about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. Have, what have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So he says, yes, I'm a king, but not as you think. He says, I'm a king, but the kingdom I reign over is not of this world. So Pilate asked him as plainly as he can. And Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. It seemed Rome would have been concerned if he was a king that was coming for land or, or territories. But Jesus is showing that the battle is not over land, but it's over belief in a person. If he was trying to take over Rome, he said, where are all the people that would be trying to stop this? He's saying, it's just you and me, Pilate. Because Jesus is in control of what's happening. Jesus is showing Pilate that the kingdom is not coming by acts of violence, but submission to God. That his mission is not to overthrow Rome, but to bring the truth to people. So Pilate asked Jesus in verse 38, he said to him, what is truth? And after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and he told them, I find no guilt in him. Meaning, what is truth? I mean, truth is just whatever anybody says. Truth is what the most powerful say it is. But Pilate needs a way out. You see, the emperor Tiberius, he's kind of in semi-retirement on the Isle of Capri. And he found out that Sionis uh, had had his son poisoned. So what does Tiberius do? He has Sionis put to death. And so Pilate knows that he is a supporter of Sionis and that they're friends and that he needs a win. So Pilate, in fact, he would not probably have survived another disagreement between the Jews and the Romans. He couldn't keep peace. He needed to keep both sides happy, so he comes up with a plan. In verse 39, it comes by the most unlikely of people. He says, so you have a custom that I should release one man for you on Passover. So I want to release to you. So who do you want me to release to you, the king of the Jews? See, about 1,500 feet away, in the bottom of the Tower of Antonio, there's a well-known prisoner named Barabbas. Pilate thinks he's got it figured out. See, Barabbas, he was an enemy of both sides. He, was a bro he broke the Jewish laws but he also stood against Rome. He stole, he was a murderer, led revolts against the government. He was a terrorist. He was a threat to Jewish laws in the Roman government. But those that were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, hell, king of the Jews, notice what they're shouting in verse 40. Jesus stood before them, they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber, so in one voice, they cry out for Barabbas to go free. And so today, John wants us to see, first of all, Jesus 
is in absolute control. That they are not taking Jesus' life. He is willingly laying it down. And he has absolute control of every step of the way. And then John wants us to see Peter's changing devotion. He stood up. He said, I'll never leave you. I will be the one that will be with you till the end. That he was even willing to die. But we see Peter doing exactly the opposite. That Peter is showing us what every one of us are capable of. The darkness of the human heart. But then Barabbas, I mean, he becomes the most unlikely person to experience mercy. I mean, he's 1,500 feet away. He could probably hear the people crying out, crucify him. Perhaps not knowing who they were referring to. So here's this Barabbas, completely guilty, under judgment, waiting to be put to death. Many have even speculated that it was his cross that Jesus would be put upon. He is absolutely without hope. Imagine what it was like for him when they came, unlocked that lock of that cell, took those chains, let him go, and said, you're a free man. I believe he took off running just in case they changed their mind or they had the wrong guy. But here's Barabbas. He's the only man to ever live who could say that Jesus Christ literally took his physical place. That another man took his place in prison and eventually his place of death. You know, Barabbas is the one that truly experienced mercy. He was guilty and justice was coming. But Jesus took that judgment so Barabbas could go free. So this next week is Holy Week. I'd love for us to reflect on these thoughts. I think we're to see ourselves as Barabbas. That Jesus physically took his place and we can say that Christ spiritually took ours. That we deserve death. That we deserve God's wrath to be poured out on us. That we deserve eternal punishment in the lake of fire. But Jesus was delivered up for us. He was handed over to the judgment for our sins. That he suffered the death that we deserve. That we are Barabbas. That this week you would always reflect upon what we deserve. And where we would be without Jesus laying down his life. And then you would see Jesus active. Always moving his life toward ours. For our ultimate good. And I believe it will make the glorious things that we celebrate on Easter all the more glorious. So let's pray. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.